Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Friday, May 8th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura and the Slate Political Gap Fest. On today's show, what is wrong with American restaurants? Everything, according to my very unhappy guest, who will be serving up a small plate of distress, along with an appetizer of misery. And then on the spiel, why haven't you been to Gettysburg yet? But first... From Slate, it's the gist. From Slate, it's the gist. Hmm. Where have I heard that before? So way back in 1996, when Mike Pesca was just a little a little boy going to Islanders games on Long Island somewhere, who's just a moat in his mother's eye, I was a junior staff writer at Slate when it was launching. And you know what was the very first story to run in the very first issue of Slate? It was a feature that we called The Gist. It was The Gist from Slate, and it was by me. The Gist 1996 version was supposed to be the definitive nonpartisan answer to some question of public policy at the moment. In the case of that first issue, it was, has drug use risen under Bill Clinton, as Republicans at the time were saying it had. So I reached the definitive answer that maybe, that was the definitive answer, was maybe. And over the next several years, me and several other gisters tried to give a final answer to the universe on such questions as, what does the Mossad do? Is there more adultery than there used to be? Who murdered John Benet Ramsey? Could Texas be its own country? Who pays for the internet? Who are the Kurds and what do they want? The answers to those questions, incidentally, are kill and blackmail, maybe, don't know, know you, and do you have another three years for me to explain it? In any case, I am happy to be back home at The Gist. On May 4th, America's food elite gathered for the James Beard Awards. The cooking world's highest honors beard medals went to Batard, America's best new restaurant, to Christina Tosi of Momofuku as outstanding pastry chef, Michael Anthony of Gramercy Tavern, outstanding chef. Some may look around the restaurant universe and see a golden age chefs never held in higher esteem. Restaurants of every kind, high and low, thriving in big cities, in little cities, a revolution in local cooking and local eating, technological advances, the sous vide. But not my guest, Wesley Morris. He has come to call restaurant goers to the barricades. Wesley is a staff writer at Grantland. He's the host of the podcast, You Like Prince Movies. He won the Pulitzer Prize for criticism in 2012, although not, I would add, for food criticism, for film criticism. And he has not, in fact, come to the gist to speak about movies. He has come for something much more important. Wesley, you have come to the gist to deliver a cri de corps, I understand, to make an impassioned case that something has gone terribly, terribly wrong with the American restaurant. What has gone wrong? A lot. I think, you know, I think there are things, there's a lot of praise to be given to restaurants. I also think we should just preface this conversation by saying, I'm aware of all the things happening in the world right now. <laughs> I understand that, you know, I don't know, the NSA phone program is illegal and getting your nails done is like a huge economic cost and Nepal, Baltimore, 
But I, I figured we could take a break from that. It's Friday. So when I asked you what was wrong with restaurants, you sent me the following list of phrases. Pre-clearing, being seated at the farthest, saddest possible table, gratuitous cluster seating, misappropriated ownership, as in I'm out of blank tonight, I have a lovely blank, restaurant uniforms, and being ignored. So I don't even see what all these things, what holds all these things together. But it, I feel that you're just a I'm what holds of, all of these things over. So what is it? Tell me what this resentment is. What's, what is it that's happening in the restaurant that has made you so upset? I, I think that one of the things that, that I notice as a, as a person who dines out a lot and dines out alone, I should say. So I have extra time to look around and see how I'm treated and to be able to compare one dining experience to the next. I... I have an incredible luxury, right? I do not have kids. I am single. I Whatever disposable income I have that I can spend dining out every once in a while or a few times a week, uh, I take very seriously, and it's a treat for me, whether I'm eating at Chipotle or eating someplace that costs a lot more. And the things I want at, at any place are pretty simple, and those things are good service, respectful service, a, the quick and attentive service. And I noticed that there are some places that take you a little bit longer. And this is not just in New York where I live. This is in many cities. It takes people when you walk into the restaurant, some restaurants, a second to notice that you've come in. And it takes a second if you've been seated at a bar or have decided to seat yourself at a bar for a bartender to come over and give you a welcome, including a menu and perhaps a glass of water. Um these things, these are these are not new problems. I just think that the intensification of them over the last couple of years is something that I've noticed. I have no outlet to complain about these things. Well, the gist, the gist is your outlet. The gist is, <laughs> is your outlet to complain. So it is, I mean, Americans are, are, we're famously democratic people. We are, we don't particularly have a culture of service. Is it that you are just eating out in America and it's really... You're, you shouldn't be served. It's not. It's, you shouldn't expect service. This is not something that we do well. That's absurd. I mean, that's absurd. I mean, okay. I have eaten in other countries, and this, like, I had bad service in other countries too. I, 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 I've had service where my number one pet peeve, wherever I go, is how long do I have to wait to be recognized in the establishment I've entered. How long will it – I don't care about how long it takes me to get a meal unless it's outrageously long. I just want to get the process going. And how long is it going to take for that? How long is it, is it going to take me to get my name on a list? How long is it going to take me to get from the waiting area to my table? How long is it going to take whoever is serving me or bringing me my food or explaining me how, to me how the restaurant works? How long is it going to, is it going to take to get that process underway? If it takes longer, okay, I come into your restaurant. I go into Plotz's. Welcome. Welcome to Plotz's. I okay. probably wouldn't have said that. that yet, that's apparently. immediate. That's immediate. I'm happy. I have no complaints. You have welcomed me to Plotz's in a nanosecond. I'm shutting up. But I'll, I'll give you a, like at the other end of the extreme example. You go into a, to a fast food restaurant. And the whole idea there is to get the process going so that the line keeps moving if you're at a busy place. And the conveyor belt is held up by, you know, some coworker chit-chat, which happens. Like, there's a lot of coworker chit-chat in restaurants. 
And you just patiently wait for you someone to look up and say, "Do you what kind of rice do you want on this burrito bowl?" And it takes a little bit longer because you know it's a slow day, and the people can talk amongst themselves, and you can wait. Those are things that bother me. I'm not. I don't want to wait. I wonder if you not in the Chipotle, but your first example, having to wait in a restaurant. Maybe what you are is a victim of something else. You're a victim of the of your dining aloneness. That in fact the mm. problem is not with restaurants. It's just that they don't really think, oh, this guy needs to be seated because surely he he wouldn't need to be seated because his dining partner isn't here yet. Do you think that's the, that you that it's the your lone wolf nature that has that is causing this prejudice against you? That's a fair question. I would say no. I think the stigma. This is a point at which I'm going to posit something that probably requires some counterpoint from an actual woman. But I would say as a single man going to eat by myself, it's a slightly different experience. A lot of my treatment has to do with the economics of dining alone as opposed to the social aspect of dining alone. I, If I'm going to be seated at a, at a table or if I prefer to be seated at a table, I am costing the restaurant another place setting, tech, you know, theoretically, if it's a busy night and two people come in and they have to wait for a table that I am reading a book, having an excellent meal they have to wait and that costs them an extra place setting and most of the places i go to have a bar and my preference in a lot of cases is to eat there because the action is is at the bar generally and if you're not with someone else you can talk to the bartender you can watch you know you can survey the restaurant if you're lucky enough to get a spot at the corner um i don't feel stigmatized and i don't feel that the restaurant can't handle me as a single diner I also wonder, because I do feel like this is some form of premature fuddy-duddyism where you're just complaining about everything. So just let me just put that out there. I'm Steingartening is what you're saying? But but (laughs) if you think about uh, modern life, so much of modern life and all this technology we're dealing with is designed to prevent you from ever having to wait anywhere for anything. Mm -hmm. That that we are really queuing. The whole queuing world has changed because of technology. But almost anywhere you have to wait in the world, whether it's at a government office to get your license renewed, at, a, at an auto repair shop to get the mechanic to look at your car, at a doctor's office, it's a, really, it's a lot more unpleasant than the experience of waiting at a restaurant. So where do you get off being so outraged at, at, at the, the restaurant where the waiting is in at least in a pleasant surroundings and it's usually a pretty brief period of time? Okay, you're misconstruing my problem. Uh, comparing going to the restaurant, going to a nice restaurant, to going to the DMV, uh, I don't know. I'm not. I don't support that comparison because the DMV is, is there is there to do a very specific purpose that most people, if they're lucky, only experience what once every five or six years, or four years. Uh, dining is something that some people do, if you know, at a certain echelon, once a month, every six months. It's a special thing, and it should be made to feel special. Do you, do you think this is a thing that that's like tailoring, some sort of lost art that we need to restore? Ooh. And or do you think it's actually that there has never been this golden age of service, and we're it's a mythology, and we in fact we have to create it? So so are you looking to the future or the past for a resolution? I'm going to say this without having any data with me, but I'm going to say I'm going to posit that there are more restaurants now than there were 20 years ago, say. And I'm going to say that dining out now is a, is more. It's more of a it's more of a way that 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 some people get their meals than 
than ever before. Definitely, definitely true, yeah. And I think that with the proliferation of restaurants, there is, there is a real need for service that doesn't require people to know how to serve. And I think that that is the compromise that that is made. I think there are a lot of restaurants that open for the fun of opening a restaurant, for the passion of serving this delicious food uh, that's been made from wherever. You know, the, the sort of the artisanalization of restaurant tourism has compromised what I would say is a what used to be an important aspect of going to a restaurant, which is the service part. Um I don't think there's any excuse for taking my plate before I'm finished with it. If there's food on my plate and I have not pushed the plate away from my my place setting, I am not done. What is your solution? Is it that we need to create a professional serving class, a kind of serving uh, special ops that will go teach everyone service? Or that we diners need to lower our standards as I have? Because frankly, a lot of your complaints don't, they're not ones that I share. I'm just so grateful to not have to make my own dinner that that it's that I don't really care what happens. To yeah, you mentioned this. Um, but what what is your remedy? Are you are you proposing to start a revolution, a dying revolution? <laughs> You're going to go on strike and 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 grab any waiter's arm who t- attempts to take a plate too early? Um, I have smacked hands. I mean, that's sort of where I'm at. Now. <laughs> you did not. You have I have smacked. smacked. David, come on! <laughs> like you've taken my plate. Okay, look, I should. It's not right, but I have done it, and I have apologized for it, but I have also made that person aware of why I slapped his hand. I, it's just not right. So the solution to this problem, I don't want more, more, more formalism in my dining. I don't need more – I don't need that. So it's that. not down nabby. You don't want down nabby. God, no. I mean I don't want, I don't want butlering at, at, the, at the table. I just want a kind of respectful understanding of, of like basic needs. Like for instance <sighs> – Keep the water coming, but don't come after every sip I take. That's a little too formal for me. Or that's like that's like a boondoggle. I'm okay if I don't see you for 15 minutes if you're waiting on me. It's fine. Just, you know, if my glass is empty, please feel free to fill it. But if I take one sip, eh, I don't think I need that. Where are you eating tonight, Wesley? <laughs> Uh, I'm going to shuffleboard to celebrate something good that happened to a friend of mine. Um, and I don't, I, I hope that the food at this place is good. I've been to this place before, but it's a crapshoot about what kind of food you're going to have. All right. Enjoy your dinner tonight if you possibly can. Thank you, Wesley Morris. <laughs> Thank of you, Grantland, for coming in. Thanks, David. And now the spiel. I live in Washington, D.C., which is the home of America's secular, sacred, sacred secular, the Library of Congress, the Capitol, the Supreme Court, the Vietnam Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial. These places inspire a solemnity that is practically unheard of elsewhere in the country. And even after 45 years of living here in the nation's capital, I had never found a place that filled me with as much reverence as the Lincoln Memorial, especially the Lincoln Memorial at night does until this week when I finally visited the Gettysburg battlefield. For my parents' birthday, I arranged a battlefield tour with Pete Carmichael, who runs the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, big, big podcast fan, incidentally. And my wife, my older kids, and my parents spent last Saturday driving and walking the battlefield with him. We went to the lesser known fields of the 
day one of the battle, July 1st, Willoughby Run. We went to the Confederate Grave Pit uh, near Culp's Hill. We went to a little round top, of course, in the Devil's Den, which are just shockingly beautiful places. And to the open fields of Pickett's and Pettigrew's Charge, which was the attack that that uh, may have lost the war for the Confederacy. And there are many wonderful things about the Gettysburg landscape. And one very disturbing thing, which I want to get to. So the first wonderful thing is that the land has basically been restored to how it looked in 1863, which I didn't know when I went there. I just I thought I was just going to go to Gettysburg and there would be the world of Gettysburg. But in fact, the landscape looks more or less, not entirely, because there are not, for example, feral pigs or wild pigs foraging around. Um, but it looks more or less as it looked uh, would have looked to the generals at the time. There are fields where there were fields. There are forests where there are forests. There are fences where there were fences. There are buildings where there were buildings. And there are, that's, that gives you a real sense of the topography of the battle. You wouldn't want the whole country to be manicured in this way. Uh, there were definitely not enough chipotles in the 1863 landscape, for my taste. But as a place out of time, this, this, uh, this is very soothing to see this, um, at Gettysburg at least. The second wonderful thing that Gettysburg had, which again I knew nothing about, is that it has perhaps the greatest collection of public sculpture memorial in the United States or maybe even in the world. There are more than a thousand monuments in in the battlefield memorializing battalions, individual soldiers, generals. They line the roads uh, of the battlefield and at every key point you'll see memorial after memorial after memorial. Some are quite modest, just a stone and a plaque. And some are vast. There's a there's a memorial that looks a bit like the Taj Mahal, castle-like structures. Um, there's a some of my favorites. There's a wolfhound statue honoring the Irish Brigade. Or there's Governor Warren, who was a great leader uh, of the Union, who's standing at Little Round Top. He's standing on a rock there, vast, uh, overlooking the battlefield. And there's one of John Burns, who's this incredible character, who is a Union stalwart who was 70 years old, and he decided to, when the, he heard the Confederates were, were coming, he grabbed his gun and went out to fight uh, and became a, became a hero of the Union at the time. And the landscape is just unbelievably beautiful and sad, and it looks nothing like anything else you've ever seen. It really is entirely different. And for this reason alone, you should visit it. But, and here's the but, there is something fishy going on on the Gettysburg battlefield. So let's remember that Gettysburg was a battle in which a just victor, the Union, the North, defeated a wrongheaded and evil enemy, the rebels of the South. But Gettysburg is instead a monument to unity. Perhaps the strangest thing I've seen this year is a huge statue of Robert E. Lee astride a horse overlooking the fields of Pickett's Charge. So here's this monument, this memorial to Lee and to, to the general of the Confederacy, the traitor at the site of his greatest defeat, at the place where he came to destroy the government of the people, by the people, and for the people, came to destroy the liberty of the United States. And yet he stands triumphant, gigantic over the battlefield. And you ask yourself, does, you know, does Germany erect statues to its great Nazi generals? And I was wondering if the South has somehow rewon the battle on the fields of Gettysburg by recasting the Civil War as a fight among brothers. Each side honorable, each noble in purpose, 
and on an equal footing. And we have this even at Gettysburg, even overlooking the field where the North essentially won the war. It is fine and good and right to acknowledge the sacrifices made by individual Confederate soldiers, men who were conscripted to fight, men who were shot for desertion, men who had no choice at all in what they did. It is honorable to honor them. It is right to honor them. But to honor the men who led them and to honor the cause for which he led them, to honor Lee and his and his colleagues who fought to destroy our country and to preserve slavery, to memorialize them as equals on the most sacred battlefield in the country, it's strange and it's sickening. So by all means, you should go to Gettysburg, but please wear blue. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is a swamp devil from the 9th Indiana Regiment. She's also on vacation with Mike. Managing producer Joel Meyer is a standard bearer for the Butternut Boys, the 2nd Missouri Cavalry. Executive producer Andy Bowers is a huckleberry, of course, a proud soldier in the 7th Wisconsin Infantry. Thanks for having me on The Gist. I had a great time. You can check out Atlas Obscura at www.atlasobscura.com. Mike Pesca is back on Monday. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm James Ledbetter. I'm the host of Inc. Uncensored, our podcast about business, startups, entrepreneurship, cool companies, and just about anything else that hits the like buttons of my staff. Uh, our staff. Yeah. 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 Woo! Staff. <laughs> this week, we're going to be talking about, John? The giant opportunity in fast food. I will give you a hint. It ain't artisanal and it ain't organic. Okay, Chris Frieswick. HBO Silicon Valley. Funny, but not as funny as the real thing. And Will Yakowitz. I'll be talking about Bloom Nation, the flower company that wants 1-800-Flowers to will. So please join us at Inc. Uncensored when we will crush it. We are a proud part of the Panoply Network. Enjoy all the podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Panoply.